All right, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to John chapter 11. Last Lord's Day, I finished uh, the second of two sermons on Jesus' encounter with Lazarus. And, you know, as I got to think about this week, I was tempted to do a third sermon, maybe spend more time on the resurrection. But given the pace that we're moving through this gospel and given the fact that we will be coming up on the doctrine again with Jesus' resurrection, I thought we would just go ahead and move on. And another reason I wanted to move on is because of a theme that we're going to see here in this text that we've seen already earlier in the chapter. So first, let's read our text. And this is John chapter 11, and we'll start in verse 45. It says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people and not the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So that from on that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near, near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this most sacred time as we open your word. Father, be with us today. Lord, as we open this word, Lord, may we see you, see your glory, see you for who you really are. Lord, we thank you that you have not left us in blindness. Lord, may you open our eyes to see the glorious truths found here in your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, if you have a Bible similar to mine, you may see a heading at verse 45 that says something like, the plot to kill Jesus. And that certainly is what this text is primarily about. However, in this plotting, we're going to learn a great deal about ourselves, as well as learn a little bit about God and how he works. First, let's state the problem. If you recall, a sermon or two ago, I had mentioned the parable of the rich man and Lazarus from Luke 16. The rich man had died, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham from afar off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. 
But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The rich man was absolutely convinced that all his brothers needed in order to be convinced of the truth was just more evidence. Surely a man rising from the dead and sharing his story would convince a sinner to repent, right? Not necessarily. Abraham's response was, well, if they will not listen to the word of God, they will not be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Well, here in John chapter 11, a man named Lazarus was actually raised from the dead. Lazarus had been in the grave for four days. Now, suppose you were unfamiliar with this story. What outcome would you anticipate from such a miracle? Wouldn't you expect that all those who witnessed this astounding event, firsthand observers of this miracle, would unquestionably believe in Jesus Christ? It seems inconceivable, doesn't it, that anyone to stay in a state of disbelief after witnessing such a powerful miracle of such magnitude. How could anyone possibly reject this awe-inspiring sign? And we would naturally anticipate that everyone present, as well as those who would hear about it through their testimonies, would readily embrace faith. But yet, what do we find instead? Verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. In short, some believed, some did not. And so the first thing I want you to see from this is how the Jews' lack of faith highlights the inherent blindness of our hearts towards the things of God unless the Holy Spirit brings about regeneration. Verse 45 informs us that many Jews believed in Christ after witnessing the miracle of Lazarus being raised from the dead. Again, this is the outcome we expect, right? It's only natural that witnessing such an event would lead to faith. However, what surprises us here in this story is that not everyone believed. One would assume that all witnesses of such an amazing miracle would unquestionably become believers in Christ, and yet verse 45 does not say that all believed, but only many. Furthermore, it reveals an even more astonishing fact. Some of the eyewitnesses then went to the Pharisees to report what Jesus had done. Now, you might assume that these folks went to the Pharisees out of excitement in what Jesus had accomplished. They went to go share the good news of Christ with the with Pharisees, right? Not at all. Those who went to the Pharisees are contrasted in this text with those who believed. They approached the Pharisees in a state of unbelief. Their purpose was to accuse Jesus, 
Calvin writes, and those who accuse Christ, we behold detestable ingratitude or rather horrible rage from which we infer how blind and mad is their impiety. The resurrection of Lazarus ought undoubtedly to have softened even hearts of stone. But there is no work of God which impiety will not infect and corrupt by the bitterness of its poison. So then, before man can profit by miracles, their hearts must be purified. For they who have no fear of God and no reverence for him, though they saw heaven and earth mingled, will never cease to reject sound doctrine through obstinate ingratitude. Thus you will see in the present day many enemies of the gospel, like fanatics fighting with the open and visible hand of God, and yet they demand miracles from us. But it is for no other purpose than to show that in stubborn resistance they are monsters of men. Unquote. And we see this further as the story unfolds. When the chief priests and the Pharisees learn about Jesus' deeds, they don't rejoice. They don't respond with repentance or fall to their knees in faith. Instead, they gather for a council and then ponder the question, but what are we going to do with him? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone's going to believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Beloved, pay attention to the fact that these are the chief priests and Pharisees who are expressing these concerns. They are the ones entrusted with leading the people of God. And yet here they are conspiring against God and seek to hinder the people from perceiving the truth. They're not gathered in humble submission to God, but to oppose him and his word. And so you cannot help but see in this a vivid demonstration of our blindness toward divine matters. And does this not speak to what we've already heard from this gospel regarding the heart of man? Remember, we read back in John 6, verse 44, no one can come to me. That's universal. No one can come to me unless something takes place first, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then in John 3, 3, Jesus answered Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Beloved, this gospel is making clear time and time again that faith requires the work of the Holy Spirit. We understand that God must draw us. We understand that Christ must heal our spiritual blindness just as he had healed a man's physical blindness. And now here again in an encounter where Jesus performs his greatest miracle outside of his own resurrection, one would expect that those who witness such things would fall to their knees in repentance and belief, and yet many persisted in their unbelief. Such is the profound extent of our fallen natures. Even when a man is raised from the dead, whether it be Lazarus or Jesus, our natural inclination is to not believe it. And so our inherent blindness, separate from the transforming work of the Holy Spirit, is evident in this story. It's loud and clear. I'm reminded of what Paul wrote concerning the natural condition of man without the regenerating work of the Spirit. He wrote to those in Corinth, 
And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. Right? I wasn't trying to get fancy to pull something over the wool over your head. But rather I came in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths of those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him that we have the mind of Christ? Beloved, when Jesus brought Lazarus back to life, the Spirit of God utilized this miracle to prepare certain individuals for faith. The Spirit also used this miracle to strengthen the faith of those who had already believed. However, it's, it is surprising to note that those on whom the Spirit did not work, despite witnessing this miracle firsthand, remained in their unbelief. And so their lack of faith serves as a testament to our inherent spiritual blindness, apart from the work of the Spirit. Another thing we can observe in this passage is how the Jews' disbelief reveals the self-centered nature of our hearts without the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. Beloved, do you recall again what, what happened in the Garden of Eden? Here, Adam and Eve were blessed with abundance, dwelling in a paradise created by God. Their relationship with their creator was intimate and unbroken. However, when the serpent appeared, he brought temptation into their midst. And the essence of this temptation was the insidious suggestion that God may be withholding something from them. It planted the idea that disobedience to God's command and partaking of the forbidden fruit would unlock greater benefits than what they had at the moment. And so it enticed them with this notion of self-elevation by discarding the boundaries that were set by God. Adam and Eve's fall into sin was a shift in their affections 
They began to prioritize self-love over their love to God. Their primary allegiance should have been to God, faithfully obeying his commands. However, they caved in to the voice of the tempter and redirected their love exclusively towards themselves. And they embraced a self-centered mindset, making their own desires and interests their top priority. And of course, their choice led to destruction and death. Well, we see this same struggle here in this story in John 11, from the fallen seed of Adam, when the chief priests and Pharisees exhibit the same spirit of self-centeredness and a desire for self-exaltation, when they heard that Jesus had raised a man from the dead, instead of believing in Christ, as you might expect, they engaged in reasoning among themselves, debating. They call a council and began discussing the situation and what concerned them. In verse 47, it states, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Again, Calvin writes, Not less monstrous is the blindness of the priest, which is here described. If they had not been exceedingly stupid and brutish, they would at least have been impressed with some reverence for Christ after so striking a demonstration of his divine power. They now assembled deliberately and intentionally to bury the glory of God, at the sight of which they are constrained to be astonished. True, they do not openly proclaim that they wish to make war with God, but as they cannot extinguish Christ but by overturning the power of God, they unquestionably fight against that power openly by presumption and sacrilege. Infidelity indeed is always haughty and despises God, but does not all at once break out to such an extent as to raise its horns against God. But when men have long struggled against God, the result at which they ultimately arrive is that they endeavor to ascend above heaven after the manner of giants without any dread of the divine majesty for they acknowledge that Christ doth many miracles, in which proceeds his great power. They therefore openly prepare to crush the power of God, which shines in the miracles of Christ. Yet God is not unemployed, but though he wink at them for a time, he laughs at their foolish arrogance till the time come for executing his wrath, as it is said in Psalm 2. End quote. Friends, they could not deny the fact that Jesus had performed numerous signs. They had to acknowledge that these signs were genuine and had led many people to believe. However, their concern was not about believing in Christ, accepting the truth. They were more worried about the Romans catching wind of all this and potentially taking away their power. Now, the Romans viewed movements like the one surrounding Jesus, as threats to national security. And so in some sense, there's kind of a valid concern here. If things were to spiral out of control, they might suffer at the hands of the Romans. The temple could be destroyed and the nation overthrown. But although the leaders claimed to be concerned about the well-being of the nation, do you really think that was their real concern? While the threat from the Romans was a legitimate concern, 
it's still hypothetical. The real threat to them was Jesus himself. Believing in Jesus would demand that these men bow before him. It would require them to humbly submit to him. Faith in Christ would have necessitated that these men in some way or another be humbled from their positions of high standing. And yet they were far more preoccupied with preserving their status than paying attention to what they considered insignificant, such as a man being raised from the dead after four days. Again, beloved, this is the unfortunate reality of our inherent state. When we enter into this world, we are inclined towards self-centeredness. We want to cast off God's word and its demands from us. And instead of prioritizing the pursuit of truth and being willing to sacrifice everything to live in accordance with it, we are driven by self-interest as we perceive it should be, completely divorced from God's word. Do you recall what Jesus had said earlier to the disciples? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. In him. When Jesus told the disciples that it was time to go to Judea again, they were concerned. Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and you're going there again? It's not safe. And yet what was Jesus' response? The biggest danger is in disobeying God's commands. And so we ask ourselves, how can I get ahead in life? How can I secure comfort and immediate gain? And then the truth becomes secondary as long as it doesn't harm our personal domain. This self-serving mentality characterizes the natural, untransformed individual. And the Jews' lack of belief in this narrative serves as a testament to the self-centeredness that's ingrained in our hearts without the renewing work of the Holy Spirit. But then it gets even worse. Not only did these individuals persist in their unbelief, they even went so far as to plot Jesus' death. Their hearts were calloused and devoid of compassion. The remarkable response to Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead was now a sentence of death, not only for Jesus, but as we've noted before, it will be for Lazarus as well. And furthermore, what adds to the astonishment is that the very person who instigated this wicked plot was none other than the high priest himself, Caiaphas. He boldly and convincingly proposed the plan, arguing that it was preferable for one man to be sacrificed rather than the, than the entire nation suffering the consequences of Roman authority. This was the man who was supposed to act as a mediator between God and man, between his people, teaching them righteousness, guiding them in God's ways. And yet here he is behaving like a tyrant, devoid of any integrity. Again, beloved, this is who we all are apart from the work of God in our hearts. Left to ourselves, we would all perish and suffer God's wrath eternally. But even as bad as it gets, even in the midst of such hardness of heart and evil planning and scheming, 
we now see the sovereign grace and mercy of God at work. So we see the problem with man. Now notice the solution. Caiaphas stated, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now by this, Caiaphas meant that we should get rid of Jesus in order to solve our problem. It's better that he die than that the whole nation get squashed by the Romans. And yet notice verse 51. He did not say this of his own accord. Now don't misunderstand what John is saying here. Caiaphas most certainly said these words. They came from his mouth. They came from his heart. He is expressing his desire to murder Jesus in order to solve their little problem. And yet at the very same time, we find out that he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Beloved, do you recall one of the major points we've seen in this story of Lazarus already? How things may appear one way, but in reality something deeper is going on? You remember how we saw Jesus intentionally delayed for two days to going to Lazarus when he was asked for help? We saw him rejoice that he wasn't there sooner to prevent his sickness from killing him. And we wondered why in the world he would do that, only to find out that it was all decreed and planned with purpose. Well, here we're seeing this played out yet once again. While Caiaphas meant one thing by his statement in endorsing the murder of Jesus, his ambiguous statement was actually decreed by God. Unknowingly to Caiaphas and to those to whom he said it, but it was decreed to proclaim God's intention for Christ to die as a substitutionary atonement for his people. Jesus would indeed die for the nation, sacrificing himself for the sins of his chosen people, both from Israel and the Gentiles. If that don't blow you away, I don't know what will. It reminds me of what Joseph said to his brothers. You know, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. A significant point to grasp in this is that God remains in control throughout. He directed even the words of an unregenerate heart, causing Caiaphas to unwittingly speak prophetically about God's will, that Jesus will lay down his life for his sheep not only from Israel, but also from among the Gentiles. Friends, God's purposes are accomplished despite our blind hearts, despite our self-centeredness, and despite how calloused we may be. Our God reigns supreme, unhindered, undeterred by man and his wicked schemes. And did we not hear this earlier from Jesus himself in chapter 10? 
as he contrasted himself to these false shepherds, such as Caiaphas. Remember, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Now, isn't that something? Here's Jesus telling them ahead of time how all this is going to play out. He told it to them beforehand. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And now they're plotting to kill him. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And now we see that Jesus will die for the children of God, those according to election. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. And now we see that he will die not only for the nation of Israel, but for all those scattered abroad. Beloved, it was all there earlier in chapter 10. He told them ahead of time what the plan was. And now here they are unknowingly affirming that very plan with their own wicked words and actions. And they don't even grasp the significance of any of it. They, they don't even grasp what's coming out of their mouths because of their own blindness, because of their own stubborn, hard, and evil hearts. Folks, it's astonishing. And to add to that, what would eventually happen to their nation into their temple. Approximately 40 years later, it would all be laid flat by the Romans. Isn't that amazing? They plot to murder Jesus in order to save their nation, to save their temple, totally disregarding the wisdom of God. Meanwhile, they're used of God to carry out his sovereign decree regarding the substitutionary atonement of Christ, and in the end, end up losing their nation and temple as well. Don't play with God. He's not to be trifled with. Again, I can't help but hear Psalm 2. Calvin already alluded to it. This is straight out of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? They're plotting. The kings of the earth set themselves and their rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against the, his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. 
Let's cast away his word, his commands. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. God laughs at them. Why? Because their opposition is not going to frustrate his sovereign plan and decree. And then he will speak to him in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree of the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, be wise. Don't lean on your own wisdom. Be wise. Listen to the word of God. Be warned, O rulers. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. And blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Well, I close with this. For those of you who have not yet believed in Christ, I want to encourage you to reflect on the works that he has performed here in this gospel. Especially climaxing here with the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Take a moment to consider the remarkable deeds he accomplished during his life, which serve as undeniable demonstrations of his divine power. Look specifically at the raising of Lazarus and recognize how it foreshadows the even greater work of his own death and resurrection. It's through these miraculous acts Christ is revealing his authority over death itself and his ability to bestow eternal life. Take heed of these works. Let go of your self-centeredness and give glory to God. Cease trying to cling to your own life or what you think is quote-unquote safe. Remember that by desperately holding on to your own life, you will ultimately lose it. That by surrendering your life to Christ, you will find true life. Repent of your sins and place your faith in Christ, who was the promised Messiah and Savior of the world. But what of those of you who are here today who do believe and consider yourself among the elect? Well, I say to you, do not overlook the warning that the sin we read about in this text provides, reminding us of the lingering corruption that's still within us. Even as followers of Christ, are we not still tempted to disregard God's word in our everyday lives? Are we not enticed to neglect and doubt his word, his provisions, what he's doing? Do we not sometimes rely on our own limited human wisdom and perception to navigate life's challenges? Are we not still tempted to question, to doubt, to have some suspicion about what God's doing when things don't quite go our way? So may we continually fix our gaze upon the word of God. Let us diligently attend to the truth he has revealed to us, receive it by faith and live according to it throughout our lives. Beloved, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, our vision has been restored. He has removed our blindness so that we may behold the face of God. 
how tragic and wasteful it would then be to squander this gift of spiritual sight by fixating on the worthless things of this world when we have the privilege of fixing our eyes on Christ, the eternal word of God. He has opened our eyes, and so let us fix them steadfastly upon him, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's pray.